It's a joy and privilege to open up God's word with you this Sunday. As I thought about what passage to really cover and go through for our time this Sunday, I was thinking through like, oh, maybe a gospel, like, oh, no, but SF Bible, you know, they've already gone through the gospel of Mark recently, like, oh, what about, I, I've taught on Ecclesiastes for, oh, Pastor Ray's doing Ecclesiastes, you guys are all over the Bible, which is great, you know, so I, I'm doing something that you haven't covered, uh, ho- hopefully, recently, uh, and that is in the book of Galatians. Why Galatians? Well, in particular, Galatians is near and dear to my heart because uh, when I was in college, I believe it was through the preaching and teaching of God's word through Galatians that I became a believer. I understood the gospel clearly when I was an undergrad student at UC Riverside. And so it was no exaggeration this morning and that I come with great confidence that God's word will be profitable for you. While it's possible to preach on the whole letter of Galatians in one sermon as a summary exposition to maybe give you that experience I had in college, um, that would be very long. You'd miss out on your lunch, and I don't want you to listen to a Chris Wong all-you-can-eat buffet on Galatians. So if you have a Bible, please, or Bible apps, please turn with me to Galatians chapter 6, and we will just cover verses 11 through 14 this morning. Then ask the Lord to bless our time. Galatians chapter 6, verses 11 through 14. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised, simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. But may it never be that I would boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. This is the authoritative and sufficient word of God. Will you pray with me? Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, what a joy it is uh, to come before your word. Your Your word is a lamp unto our feet, Lord. It grounds us, Lord, but also still is the means by which your spirit helps us to grow into the conformity of your son. Um, And so I pray that your spirit right now would bring forth clarity as you um, illuminate the truth to our minds, Lord, and that we would have teachable and humble hearts. We ask these things in your name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I want to begin this morning with a question, a question that I hope will be helpful for us to consider this passage. And the question is this, what do you boast in? In other words, what do you take pride in? Perhaps what you boast in and take pride in right now, or even something that you boasted or took pride in in the past or maybe even, what would you like to boast about in your life? What would you, you would like to take pride in maybe one day in a particular achievement, a particular desire in your life? Maybe it's a milestone in your career. Or maybe you have a, a bucket list of places you want to travel to. Say, like, I've been to all these places. Or maybe it's even a fulfillment of a good desire that you have not yet had or experienced. Maybe for some it's marriage. Maybe for, other, for others, it's saying you've successfully raised your children and send them off uh, to college. While for some, it's material. 
money, security, comfort, or a relatively relaxing retirement with good health. If we're being honest, all of us boast or take pride in something or someone, from one degree to another. But the question that we must ask this morning is, the things that we boast in, the things I boast in, the things you boast in, take pride in, or maybe will like to one day, what do those things reveal about your heart? What does this, do these things reveal about what you value in life? What do these things reveal about what you are worshiping, what you are assigning great worth I want for us to keep this in mind as we approach this text this morning. The Apostle Paul, the author of Galatians, was a man of many accomplishments and milestones that could have been an occasion for pride or boasting. Yet he was driven, he was compelled by one singular overriding boast in his life. The cross of Christ. In fact, you could say his whole life's ministry, his whole life's mission after his conversion was grounded in the reality of the cross that shaped everything about his life, his pursuit, his mission, and his devotion to his Lord. And so this morning we'll be looking at the reality of the cross and why at the end scheme of things, and by way of consequence, the cross of Christ is the only thing worth boasting in for this life. And that brings us to our our key idea that I would like for us to consider in our passage. Uh, And the key idea is that the cross of Christ is the only thing worth boasting in for our lives. And we'll take this in three points. Uh, The first point to consider is that the cross, the cross of Christ, it humbles us away from self-centered boasting. Paul begins this closing section of Galatians with a a curious statement. Verse 11, see with what large letters I am writing to you with with my own hand. You know, much ink has been spilt. Uh, Rather, many pages of commentaries have been written by scholars as, what did Paul really mean with this statement? Some say he was uh, afflicted with uh, poor eyesight, poor eyesight. So he had to write with these very large letters so he could actually read it himself. These words, like maybe some, some of us need like the, the big large letter text Bibles. Other scholars suggest that he had poor penmanship, lack of skill in writing smaller letters compared to maybe a trained writer, right? But when I was thinking, reading this, I was like, come on, man, what kind of messed up speculation is this? If we look at the context of the surrounding verses here in Galatians, there is a reasonable understanding behind this. So far, Paul has been using an amanuensis. That is a person to help him write this letter, to pen down his exact words, exact uh, ideas as inspired by God. Onto parchment, much like a modern-day secretary would maybe sometimes help a CEO or a boss write a a letter or uh, write an email. But sometimes things are so important that need so much emphasis, which is such clarity that Paul himself takes up the pen in this moment to physically write down and address an issue, address a theme that provides a concluding summary to Galatians. Why? To highlight this central idea 
to captivate our minds with the central thought for the Galatians in Paul's day that should captivate ours. The cross of Christ. Verse 12. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh are the ones who are all about circumcision. So what's going on here? Well, throughout the book of Galatians, these false teachers, they came into the church. They were known as Judaizers. And they taught these Galatian believers a different message from the true, pure, unadulterated gospel that Paul had preached. It was a Jesus plus something else message that these false teachers were promoting. These Judaizers were saying, yeah, of course, you, can believe, you should believe in Jesus. Yeah, you're saved by Jesus, but you need to adopt these Jewish customs as well. But you need to get in line with these traditions. But you need to be circumcised. Only then will you be made right with God. Only then will you be justified and experience a right relationship with God. Now, I've got to admit, part of me was feeling sort of uncomfortable with choosing this passage to preach on because, not, not because I'm ashamed of the cross, if that were the now the case, I don't, belong, I don't belong up here in this pulpit. Uh, Pastor Henry would probably throw a Bible at me. Security would usher me out, uh, maybe kindly. Uh, <laughs> but that's not the case. I knew that if I had to preach the glories of the cross from this text, I would inevitably have to talk about circumcision, or at least explain its significance in Paul's whole argument against the Judaizers. And so guys like Pastor Henry, maybe Roger, Ray, and Theo would maybe think like, oh man, why did, why did Chris choose this passage? What a rookie preacher mistake. Or maybe you're a visitor, first time you're here at SFBC, and I can only imagine a possible reaction you have. Like, why did they decide to talk about circumcision today? Is this like a, a trend at this church? Or... But the truth is, it's in the text. So you got to deal with it. And the truth is, circumcision is a big theme, okay, in the letter of Galatians. So what's the deal with it? What's the debate? Why is Paul up in arms against these Judaizers who who teach Gentiles to become like Jews by observing this practice of cutting the male foreskin according to Jewish customs? Because if the Galatians did observe this as a result of what these Judaizers were telling them, teaching them, then the Galatians would ultimately be revealing that they actually believed it was necessary. It would, they would reveal that they really did think it was required of them to add to the work of Christ in order to become the people of God. It would imply that Christ's death on the cross was not sufficient for them. It was as you said, Jesus did not pay it all. Let me, let me, let me add to that. This betrays a misunderstanding of the gospel. This reveals a, a fatal error, a detrimental straying from a foundational truth in biblical Christianity. And the core issue with these Judaizers and their insistence on circumcision in order to get right with God was that it was opposed to the cross of Christ. They were promoting a dead religion. For the Galatians and the Judaizers, it was a dead religion based on the work of circumcision. It's based on what I do for God. It's what do I add to the balance that tips the scale of God's favor so that I can increase the degree of his love, his, his pleas, uh, uh, him being pleased of me, his satisfaction. 
for me, of me. And this is what Paul seeks to correct. That our, the basis of his acceptance of us is not on circumcision, on works. Being made right with God. Being drawn in a good relationship with God. It's not based on that. But sometimes we live as if our relationship with God is like that, right? We not, may not, not be Judaizers, but it sure thinks and operates in the same way. And so what happens was, as the Judaizers, it showed in their life, just outward morality, to make a good showing in the flesh, And that phrase essentially means having a good face, similar to the phrase we use in our modern vernacular or uh, figure of speech, or it was like when when we say like, oh, you did that to save face. When we say or do something merely to gain or maintain the respect of other people, it's all mere outer appearances, all smoke and mirrors from the reality of one's heart, one's spiritual condition. You can make a good impression, but the inward heart is not there. And a dead religion opposed to the cross of Christ is when you live under the framework of honoring God with your lips, but your heart is far from him. So how does this dead religion rear its ugly head in our lives? Well, if we're not careful, it manifests itself in legalism. When you make the call and determine what is acceptable or unacceptable to God, And you have your own standard to be practiced, to be followed, even though you don't have a passage from Scripture that teaches and supports it. And then you also expect others to follow through it and to be like you. And you judge and critique them based on that. And that doesn't mean like behavior doesn't matter. God does care about our behavior. But God is also looking at our hearts. Any sort of true change in our lives as Christians starts with the heart. Pursuing holiness means obeying his commands. But if we take our eyes and gaze away from the cross, then we will be prone to wander and to be led astray to an incomplete view of holiness that's diluted to just outward appearances, basic morality, being a nice person, maybe having middle-class family values or conservative values that you've checked off on your list. Oh, you're holy now. You're, you're, you're good. It can lead us astray from true religion and true spiritual fruit. Jesus said, you will know my disciples by their fruit. But how often are we deceived and we operate on the external morality on an extra-biblical basis that justifies us before God? We gauge our relationship with God on an assumption that The fruit of godliness is following some maybe popular preacher, associating yourself with him or her, just just him, (laughs) sorry, having the same Bible study as your friends, uh, virtue signaling in public uh, or online about some cause while bashing your opponents who don't agree with you, but meanwhile giving little thought about the spirit working in you to, to love to experience peace, demonstrating patience, showing kindness, pursuing goodness, demonstrating faithfulness, conducting yourself in gentleness, exercising self-control in all things, all of which are characteristics and marks of true spiritual fruit. 
So what do we learn about these false teachers and their dead religion? Not only does it lead you astray from true religion grounded in the cross of Christ, these Judaizers reveal their motive, as verse 12 says, simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. So their motive, their their concern for outward outward obedience, the inner drive to have others think that they are exemplary godly people, isn't driven by a heart of conviction or, or zeal for the Lord. It's merely practical. It's, it's expedient. The path of least resistance to project an image and have others, other people believe everything's good with you. So you can get God and others off your back. Who would have persecuted these Judaizers? Well, would have been the Jews. The Jews who do not believe in Jesus Christ as their promised Messiah. They were the ones making up religious Judaism. And so then these Judaizers, they kind of played the middle path, okay? Where the, the, the Judaizers would, would okay, we'll, we'll, we'll encourage these Gentiles to get circumcised. Meanwhile, that will appease the Jews so that they don't give us flack because, oh, we're, we're going with them too. It will minimize criticism for them. Minimize persecution. Compromise for the sake of earning the respect of others. And there is a human condition that is evident in this verse, in this text. When you don't boast in the cross of Christ, but are more preoccupied and focused on yourself. And it's what Paul is challenging here in, when it comes to these Judaizers' conduct, how they minimize the cross. What is that? What is that temptation that these Judaizers played out in their lives and that can be a temptation for us? It's seeking the approval of others. It's the fear of man. When you fear what other people think, you, what you are doing is you are pumping up, you are blowing up like a giant Macy's parade balloon. You, you esteem uh, that as a big person, as a figure that you, you, you prop up. Like, oh, I need to gain this person's approval. They're so big in your mind. And all you want is for them to respect you. You crave that. You crave the words of affirmation. Meanwhile, your affection for the Lord Jesus Christ shrinks. God is made small as you earnestly seek the praises of men. And what this results in is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Look with me at verse 13. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves. So they're encouraging people to do works of the law while not even keeping it themselves. While they themselves were circumcised, there's an incongruency with them actually keeping the law. And you know what hypocrisy is? It's when you're two-faced. You say one thing or boast about something, yet you do another. You don't follow up. You're not truthful about who you really are. You project an image, but that's not the true you, the real you. And these people were driven at the end of verse thir- uh, as the end of verse 13 says, so that they may boast in your flesh. As if Paul was not using sharp language enough already, he digs the knife, the dagger of truth even deeper. And Paul describes the goal of these hypocrites as an occasion, a right opportunity for self-glory, self-boasting. In other words, if these so-called leaders 
were capable of convincing, motivating you to abandon the realities of the cross and instead get you to embrace outward external practices only and their rituals. And they don't really get to the heart of holiness. Really, all you've done, all you've accomplished is become a notch in their belt for boasting. You've just been used for the purpose of bragging rights, of how influential they are on you and others they have influenced. You're like a trophy in their trophy case. Or to use an illustration, you're like one of those big game animal heads, you know, they hang up on the wall in like a, a hallway or like a, a big room or a state by a seasoned or uh, enthusiast hunter. And these lifeless trophies are to no surprise without life. For they have been brought under taxidermy. And in the same way, when we put ourselves under this wrong view and distorted view of how we are justified before the law, we are putting ourselves under the authority of the Mosaic Law Covenant as a form of justification. But the law cannot justify or save. Only faith in Christ and Him crucified. So what do we do with this, beloved? What lesson can we learn from the hypocrisy of these Judaizers or group of people who rather than focus their ministry on the cross of Christ, instead focus on the circumcision of men? Well, I think one thing that we learn from this is something about spiritual leadership. In other words, even I as a preacher right here, right now, need to examine myself. As do others in ministry. As do others who function in a capacity of influential leadership which includes fellow brothers or sisters who make disciples or is an example as a disciple maker. It's tempting to boast in the spiritual progress of the people that we lead, we influence, we disciple. Their fruit then becomes the reason for validating our own spirituality as well as boastfully comparing ourselves with others. Yet God has never called for us to boast in what we have accomplished through other people, but to boast in God who saves and to boast in the God whose spirit transforms. And all we do is simply thank God for using an unworthy instrument such as ourselves to do his work so that Christ may be exalted. Another thing that we learn from this warning Paul gives, even though we may not be Judaizers, is that we too can be religious show-offs. It may not be the number of of guys you have convinced to get circumcised this year, like on a spreadsheet or graph or Google Doc, that you flaunt around to your friends. But it could be something else. It could be another form of religious pride or reason to brag. Yet having a cross-centered perspective rejects this model, rejects this mindset. So how do we combat this boasting? How can we crucify this pride in our lives and self-centered boasting. We must go to the cross. It is the cross of Christ that humbles us from being conceited, from being self-centered. How? Because the cross shows how undeserving we are to be saved. It shows the horror, what had to happen so that we would be reconciled to God. The cross shows us that there's nothing we can really boast about concerning ourselves or be prideful about which brings us to our second point this morning. The cross addresses man's greatest need. Look with me at the beginning of verse 14. But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Paul responds emphatically, saying, but may it never be. In contrast to the dead and false religion of human achievement that seeks salvation through one's works, there is another way to live. Paul begins to contrast himself against these false teachers. And really, he's trying to establish that there's essentially two ways to live, two ways to live that lead to two very, two very different consequences, two opposite separate outcomes. For the false teachers, they thought earning God's favor, garnering God's approval was through these works. What you do, what you bring to the table impresses God. For Paul, the only way to live, the only way that leads to life is faith in the work of Christ on the cross. In contrary to an empty religion of human achievement, Paul doubles down by boasting in the cross of Christ, where the focus of God's camera is no longer on what we have achieved in life that impresses God, that's going to impress God one day, but focuses the camera on the drama of salvation that took place on the cross of Christ. The strength of this contrast, how totally opposite Paul's view of salvation is from these false teachers, is highlighted by how he begins the verse, but may never be. It may elude us upon first reading, but this is emphatic. You know how children or youth kids, you know, when they really want something, when they really want to express a level of intensity, of a desire for something. They go like, oh, mommy or daddy, I, I, I really, really, really want this. I, I really want to get this gift for Christmas. Well, Paul is using a strong, intense expression here, a strong negative that expresses an intense disgust and abhorrence in him never, ever, ever boast in anything than the cross. It's the same expression in Romans 6.1 where Paul points out his disgust over anyone who would mistakenly think they should continue in sin so that grace may abound. When we're presented with the cross of Christ, Paul's saying it's either or. Boasting in anything in this world or boasting in the cross, the two cannot exist together. They're opposed. They're mutually exclusive. What probably doesn't initially cross our minds though no pun intended, is how Paul didn't boast in himself or his achievements. He doesn't preoccupy himself or take pride in boasting himself. Remember in Philippians chapter 3, Paul lists what would be considered a, a resume of his achievements, a reason to boast. Circumcised on the eighth day, Philippians 3, 5, Judaizers insisted on Gentiles getting circumcised. But even if Gentiles were able to do that, they wouldn't, able, they wouldn't be able to do it fully. Because as Genesis 17 says, the requirement for, or the practice of circumcision was supposed to happen on the eighth day of birth, from the, from the date of birth. But Paul met the fullest extent here. Or of the people of Israel. Not only that, Paul traced his genealogical, his DNA lineage back to the nation of Israel. To show his privilege, right? Privilege. We know something about privilege. Jane Austen novels from the Georgian period. I don't know too much about Jane Austen. but The tribe of Benjamin. Paul came from the tribe of Benjamin. A Gentile could only become a member of Israel, but they couldn't genealogically trace themselves back to an actual tribe. But here, Paul does that. The same tribe of Benjamin that led to King Saul, the first king, of whom Paul was named, uh, named after, Saul, uh, before his conversion. 
Moses blessed the tribe as his, uh, the beloved of the Lord. You can't help but hear a ring of pride, like, oh, I came from this family, like this lineage, a marker of identification. Kind of like the pride one has in like the Harry Potter, if you watch Harry Potter, when you know, you're like, oh, House of Slytherin, you know, like the Malfoy family, that sort of pride. Or Hebrew of, yes, I used, uh, yeah, I used a Harry Potter illustration. Uh, Hebrew of Hebrews. Basically, a summary description of previous three things he has said about himself. It's like a Hebrew of Hebrews, like, say, well, yeah, I'm Chinese, but I'm really Chinese. And I'll show you why you just name off all these stereotypes uh, typical to the culture. You know. As to a law, a Pharisee. The Pharisee were those within Judaism who were experts in the law. In other words, he advanced within Judaism far beyond his peer and contemporaries. Paul is like valedictorian here, right? Top of his class, studied under Gamaliel. That's like Ivy League, Ivy League professor status right there. And he got his summa cum laude to show he knows his stuff when it comes to Jewish law. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, he was zealous. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. He knew everything about the law. Now, I don't mean everything as in we use in our like, language as a figure of speech, like, we're not meaning like we think people are omniscient, but when we say we know everything, like, we're showing that we're, we're broad in our knowledge. And under righteous under the law, blameless. Paul achieved that level of knowing the law and abiding by it. Yet for him, this guy, he counted these things, all these things as loss as rubbish in comparison to the worth of knowing Christ and him crucified. Therefore, he doesn't count his achievements, his religiosity, like these Judaizers, as reasons for boast. But back to Galatians. Paul doesn't even mention his resume at all, like he did in Philippians. It's as if he, there's no place at all to, to focus on self in light of the object, the only object, the only person worthy of boasting, the cross of Christ. Notice also in verse 14, Paul doesn't even boast in other aspects of Jesus' life. He, he could have talked about the sinlessness of Christ. He could have boasted in the miracles and wonders that, he, that Jesus performed in his life. Paul could have boasted in Jesus being the greatest teacher of the law, who ran circles around the Pharisees and religious leaders of his day. Uh, he could have boasted on many other aspects of, of Christ and his life, before or even after the cross. He could have boasted about the supernatural birth of Christ through the Virgin Mary, focused on the incarnation. He could have focused on the resurrection of Christ and boasted on that. But the reality is that Paul does not boast about these other aspects, areas of Christ's life, or even mention them in verse 14. What takes preeminence? What takes supreme position for boasting in? What he sets his sights on? What preoccupies him and being the one thing to boast on is the cross. Paul glories in the cross of Christ. Now some of you are thinking, that's strange, isn't it? What's so significant about a cross? How can it be that we could boast in a cross? I mean, uh, that's, that's normal, right? Being a Christian means we accept the cross. You know, it's up here. You know, it's a symbol. Like, no bother. It doesn't bother me. Maybe for some, people just wear like a, a jewelry of a cross. No big deal, right? Or a, a tattoo of a cross. But back in that day, the, the thought of boasting in a cross is absurd. It's shocking. 
For the Romans, boasting on a cross was ridiculous as it was scandalous. Why would you worship a God who's crucified on a cross? There's a piece of graffiti from early 2nd century Rome, which is known as the uh, Alexamenos Graffito, a sort of depiction that is stretched on a plaster wall uh, near Palatine Hill in Rome, which has now since been removed and placed in a museum in Palatine, Rome. And this graffiti carved into plaster depicts a, a man looking up to a cross, and on this cross is another man being crucified. But what's interesting in this depiction, this, this, this uh, etched into plaster wall, is that the man being crucified has a head of a donkey. And below this depiction is a Greek inscription which translates, Alexa Menos worships God. As you can already gather, this was meant as an insult a mockery to, 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 those, to those Christians who would worship a God that's crucified. You see, crucifixion, the cross, it's a brutal form of execution reserved for the lowest social classes in a society, the, the lowest of criminals in a society that highly esteemed and valued honor. And among Rome's cultural elite, it was an unspeakable thing. In fact, Cicero avoided the term altogether. He preferred using a euphemism of crucifixion as hanging on an unlucky tree, much like how we use a euphemism to avoid the absurdity or maybe the, the, the horrible thought of, of death. We say things like sleep, passed away. What about the Jews? To the Jews, anyone who is hung on a tree meant you were cursed by God, Deuteronomy 21-23. And so the cross was a stumbling block for them. Something difficult to accept that tripped up their conceptions of what a promised Messiah was to be. And what about the Greeks? Foolishness. You worship that kind of God? So Paul's statement is actually very shocking. It, it rocked people's paradigms. It's as if Paul's were saying, boast in the electric chair. You're wearing an electric chair instead of a cross. Boast in lethal injection. Boast in a device or method of torture or death like one was purportedly used in the medieval times, like the Iron Maiden. Boast in waterboarding. Absurd, Right? That you would glory in something like that. Yet the cross is an utterly essential truth for Christians to understand. It's an essential for our understanding of the gospel, actually. Because quite frankly, many people don't like to hear about the cross of Christ. But guess what? The cross is something that confronts everyone. Not just you and me, not just believers here in this room, but confronts the city, confronts this whole state, confronts everyone in this world, all of humanity. You either reject it and ignore it, or you trust in it and then boast in it. Two opposite choices, two different ways to live, Two different outcomes that will ring for eternity. You see, the cross, what we would regard as an emblem, emblem of our faith, 
is also a bold symbol that confronts mankind. The scandal that God would send his son and that God's son was innocent. He was blameless. But he was crucified on a cross reserved for criminals without honor. The scandalous cross confronts every human being. The cross tells all of us here, everyone, in fact, all of mankind, that Christ was crucified because of us. That scandal happened because of us. It tells us that we have a problem that must be dealt with. The cross tells everyone that it really is us that should have been there. And Paul knows boasting in the cross isn't something that appeals to the minds of many men and many women. It's not attractive. That, that, what kind of message is that? It's not in vogue. Yet the cross addresses man's greatest need, God's righteousness for unrighteous sinners. Man's greatest need in life is not a better car, a better life, salvation. Being made right with the holy God. The cross challenges the minds of men and women because the cross says you can't save yourself. The things you think amount to something that you worship right now, they're going to fail you one day when you come before a holy God. The cross shows us that we are sinners, transgressors, idolaters, worshipers of self, money, pleasure, comfort, wealth, rather than worshipers of the creator and one true God. Therefore, we deserve punishment, the wrath of a holy and just God. So what do we learn from all this? That if we do not embrace the scandalous nature of God's perfect, innocent son, undeservedly nailed to a wooden beam, suffering God's wrath for sinners, then we will never help unbelievers see God's scandalous grace that saves. It will affect our evangelism. It will affect the type of gospel we share, where we remove the shock, or even remove talk about a cross, and just say Jesus loves you, and he wants to save you. But you've removed the offense of the cross. You've removed the utter demonstration of God's love through that scandal. There's an awful, shocking, jaw-dropping reality that comes with the good news we proclaim. And so we must never lose sight of the gospel we believe, but also the gospel we are called to share. A message without the cross of Christ is not good news at all. It's not a good message. The cross of Christ challenges us to proclaim the whole Christ, which includes what happened to him. And then showing pe- telling people why that happened to him. As you call people to believe to repent in Christ. We must never fear the the ridicule or opinions of men when speaking about the cross. We, We must never eclipse or keep the cross in the shadow in our evangelism, because if we do, we are not doing evangelism at all. Some of you may know that today is Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Easter Sunday, during what's known as Passion Week, which many of you observe. A time to reflect, uh, meditate on just 
Christ's last week of, of life during his first coming. And generally, there's two highlights for Holy Week, right? Good Friday and Easter Sunday. But one thing to consider is, why is it called Good Friday? What's so good about a bloody cross? What's good because the cross of Christ was the turning point of creation. As terrible as it was for Jesus to be crucified, it signified an important culmination and fulfillment of God's plan to save, that it would happen this way to save people from their sins. That a substitute would be provided to atone through the nailing of God's Son. And not just the nailing physically on a cross, but incurring the wrath of God, which we cannot fathom or imagine while he hung there. That is what made salvation possible. But it is also a powerful encouragement to live out our salvation for those of us who are believers, who are in Christ. Paul concludes this verse, which brings us now to our last point. The cross calls followers to a cross-centered life. Look with me again at verse 14. Paul says, By which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. It was by the cross that the world is crucified in relation to the believer. In other words, the cross of Christ is the means, it's the instrument by which our relationship with, with God and the world has been changed, has been flipped upside down, has been transformed. Because of the cross of Christ, a decisive separation has taken place the world, uh, between us and the world. We now have a new relationship to the world as believers, just as Paul did. Notice Paul isn't boasting about what happened to him. He's boasting about what happened through Christ to him. He has been crucified with Christ, and then with that, him in the world. He's been crucified, co-crucified with Christ. Now you're probably thinking, uh, last time I checked, the Bible never said Paul was, Paul's death was by crucifixion, crucifixion. So what does this mean? It means the world has been crucified to him. It's as if the world is now relationally killed off from him. Not the physical world, but because he lives in the world physically, just like we do, but he was not of it. So the way to think about this is, what profit is there if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? And that's a challenge for us today. What do we consider a life apart from a fear of the Lord, but instead pursues the vanity of the world? For Paul, the world's vanity its fallenness, its distorted values had nothing to impress or offer him anymore. Any reason for him to not boast in, in those former things. The world has lost its allure, its luster in the grand scheme of eternity. It could not offer him ultimate fulfillment. Not that he couldn't enjoy hobbies, not that he can't watch sports. Not that he couldn't have enjoyed good food, enjoy nature, own material things like transportation, a house. That's not what we mean by that sense of, of the world. But in an ultimate sense, the worldly values often glorified in a culture, things like career success, being famous, those sorts of things were 
were considered dead to him, have been crucified. The idols of human praise, power, approval of others, wanting attention, influence, these and many other values and pursuits in this world had lost its hold and grip on Paul's life now that he's been crucified with Christ. Let me use an illustration. Have you guys ever watched Aladdin? Disney's Aladdin. You know that Disney movie, right? Well, there's a popular Disney love song there in that movie called A Whole New World. And the lyrics begin with Aladdin and Jasmine singing about the thrill of exploring the world together on this magic carpet ride. And the world is described as shining, shimmering, splendid, unbelievable sights, indescribable feelings. I'll chase them anywhere there's time to spare. A whole new world with horizons to pursue. Now, I like this song. Clever lyrics, words. But for the sake of this message, I have to bash it in order to use it properly as an illustration. Why? Because these words, they more appropriately portray, reveal our former life before knowing Christ. But because of the cross and how we have been crucified to Christ and the world to us, the world to us has lost that appeal, that allure. Not that we can't enjoy God's creation. He made the creation of this world. All things are are good that he has made. But it is also tainted and marred by the reality of sin, the curse of sin in this world. So now for us who have been crucified with Christ, those worldly values, those pursuits, those idols, they now grow strangely dim in the light of the glorious beauty of Christ. We have been set free from the prince and power of this world through the cross of Christ. And it's now why we as believers, as beloved saints, can say to others, to boast even, you can have all this world, but give me Jesus. So church family, I want you to ask yourself this as we reach the end. What is it that you have now considered loss, as rubbish in this world, having now experienced the surpassing gain of knowing Christ Jesus as your Lord? What worldly idols are you still holding on to, have not crucified, that holds you down or distracts you from living and boasting for Christ and his mission? Beloved, if you are in Christ, you have been crucified with him, and the world has been crucified to you. Reciprocal, reflexive. Past action with present ongoing effects for your life. This should be the reality of your lives, that you have been transformed by the power of the Spirit and have the power and ability to pursue, to put to death these idols that prevent you from boasting in Christ. I'd like to end with the words of a classic hymn written by Isaac Watts, and it goes like this, for us to just consider and meditate on. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. 
Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. May this be our heart's desire and prayer that the cross of Christ would be central to our lives. Not just central to our understanding of the gospel and salvation, but also central in our hope for eternal life and also central to our hope today as we take up our cross and follow our crucified Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? Father God in heaven, we thank you that you are who you are and that all you, that you are and all that you do, you have accomplished through the life, through the scandalous cross where your son was nailed on that rugged tree. Forgive us for our vaunting vanities. Turn our, our eyes away from worthless things, Lord, so that we may behold the one person worth boasting in. Christ, let this be our boast in life, that we might never lose our awe and appreciation for the cross. For at the cross, we see your amazing grace that saved a wretch like us. Continue to grow and teach us to take up our own cross and follow after you until our final breath or until we see you face to face. We ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.